and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today we will be talking with the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies, Ellen Percy Crayley. Crayley studies international migration, population and the environment, population and immigration policy, demographic measurement issues and statistical systems and human rights. And her current research includes refugee policy and forced migration, the ethical and human rights dimensions of using population data systems in policy and administration, and a particular reference to Aboriginal affairs in Australia and population vulnerabilities, including community health and HIV AIDS, specifically in Eastern Africa. Outside of her teaching at Colgate, Crayley is also a member of the Civil Society Steering Committee for the United Nations Summit for Refugees and Migrants. And she's a consultant to the National Science Foundation, the United Nations Statistical Office, the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services, U.S. General Accounting Office, and the U.S. Bureau of the Census. Crayley is also an editorial board member for International Migration Review, the Journal of Migration and Human Security, and she's a member of the International Advisory Board for the Journal of Iranian Population Studies. Crayley earned her bachelor's degree from Bucknell University, her master's from Johns Hopkins, and her PhD from Fordham University. Crayley also holds an honorary degree from Curtin University in Australia. Her work and expertise has been featured in many media outlets, and she's even appeared on PBS and The Today Show. Professor Crayley, welcome to 13. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's wonderful to be here on this sunny morning, actually, here in Hamilton, New York. Well, thank you for joining us. It's a little bit of improvement from the snow we've had for the past few days. So Yes. Oh, but I love the snow up here. It's gorgeous. <laughs> so your body of work is vast and it's impressive and it's hard to know where to start. Um I had a similar feeling when I was putting together uh, Professor Avini's uh, podcast episode. Um, can you talk, I think it's, be, oh, it's always nice to start uh, at the beginning and, and maybe talk a little bit about how you got interested in refugee issues um, and migration issues and, um, you know, how that became sort of one of your main academic focuses. Okay, well, great question. And this, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, you. I hope everyone understands I'm not doing all of those things at once. <laughs> you really uh, provided kind of a, a history, a history of, uh, or her story, maybe, of, of, uh, of my career and a number of the agencies and organizations that you outlined were work that I've done really over several decades. So like Tony, you know, I've been at Colgate a long time and, and, um, uh, and have accumulated and really have been the beneficiary of so many opportunities, many of which have facilitated by Colgate. So when you ask me, how did I get interested in refugee studies in particular, it's because, you know, Scott Crayley and I have settled in this area. We've made our careers at Colgate, ha very happily so. And so um, the, you know, the pragmatist in me has, and the, and, my motivation to do service, both at Colgate, but in the community, draws me to organizations within the region. Um, 
that brought me to the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees and uh, you know, kind of allowed me to grow my suite of interests in migration studies to include forced migrants. So this, in anyone's career, but certainly in mine, there's been um, serendipity where I find myself in a place and take a look around. Maybe this is the influence on of geography on me, kind of be very place-based get inspired by people and places around me and then kind of very selfishly kind of take advantage of those of those moments. So let's go back to one of those moments. Um, I was at Bucknell. My mentor there was a demographer, Ralph Spielman, wonderful scholar. And he saw in me maybe an aptitude, maybe some mathematical skills that thought I would be right for population studies, which is very mathematical um, kind of um, area of social science and very interdisciplinary with health, migration, behavior. And uh, so he kind of nudged me. I, I, this was in the you know early 70s. I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to keep learning. I was actually out truth in advertising, a little frustrated with the liberal arts because I wasn't, didn't feel kind of uh, trained to do much. And so when he nudged me toward graduate school in public health and in a, a program of population studies, I trusted his, his aptitude and um, followed that lead. <laughs> now, in the 70s, the name of the game in population studies was fertility, high fertility driving population growth. And so at Johns Hopkins, I studied mortality, child mortality in relationship to um, fertility change. And, you know, that was very, it was very formal demography. Um, and uh, from there went on to, to work in research in New York, got married. So, you know, women and men, as you're out there, all these points that kind of nudge in different ways. So Scott and I met at Hopkins and, and got married. We both went off to New York together. And um, as soon as he was funded for his postdoc, I then said, okay, I'm, I want to go back, go beyond my master's in demography to pursue a PhD. I hope this isn't too long. But, no, you know, this is great. The, you know, no, it's very fascinating. Years. I haven't heard the story either. So well, and you know, so I get to, I get to, I get to Fordham because we were in the New York metropolitan area, and I was very much in love, and I wanted to be right with Scott. So you know, settled on Fordham. And but then you know, the practicality in me, I kind of said, okay, who's in this department? Who's kind of an, an up and comer? And it turned out to be another fellow who became my mentor, and he was a sociologist studying migration, immigration, immigration policy. Again, um, this 1970s, lot of attention to population change, population growth, the, you know, the population bomb was very much influencing what, how we were thinking about the world and the future. And what was being left out was migration. Hmm. And what Charlie, this is Charlie Keeley, um, uh, saw in me, you know, I'm looking for someone who is going to be a good mentor, going to frankly get me out of graduate school. Let me, I've had my master's, let's get my PhD and 
let's have Scott and I start a life, hopefully at a liberal arts college, because we were kind of committed to that model at that point. And Charlie was looking for someone who could crank the numbers and do the modeling about the effect of immigration on US population growth. Hmm. And there was a volume coming out, there was a US commission that he was involved in. So he was looking for skills. So we kind of found each other. I did the modeling and answered the very specific questions, actually very simple question, but a question very hard to answer. What is the effect on the United States population march towards zero population growth uh, of immigration? Because we are a country of immigrants. And it was a very, and it was becoming a very hot topic at that point. And so I did some modeling and we were able to answer that question, published very quickly in, in a very good journal uh, to get that out. It kind of pushed some buttons. You know, the anti-immigration folks didn't like it because- What was the actually, result? What, what did you find out? Well, we, were, we showed that positive population growth um, is consistent I mean, positive immigration, bringing in more immigrants that were leaving, and there are immigrants that do leave. That was the next project, oddly enough, to look at who leaves. But um, if, if we have positive net migration, that is consistent with the zero population growth. It doesn't make sense in your mind. How could having more people come in than leave be consistent with ZPG? Well, it is consistent. It's just the base population grows a little bit, but we can maintain zero population growth under certain assumptions, very reasonable, very reasonable assumptions. So, um, and it turned out around the table in formal demography in population study circles in the United States, frankly, the number of formally trained demographers who could answer those questions, you could almost count on one hand. Now, you know, 40 years later, it's a growth industry. There's so many folks studying these issues, but at the time, and there's some funny, quirky stories about how some of the most eminent demographers in the United States didn't think this was worth publishing. And, and, uh, and yet, th th then things really took off. So, you know, being open to people, ideas, being practical, but being inspired by people with certain talents, like Charlie, um, uh, kind of took me from the study of fertility mortality to the study of migration. And I've really... I've now kind of now, of course, we're looking at migration and health very seriously, but but um, it just a, kind of a whole community of social scientists opened up to me because I had some skills and they were looking for those so that those skills. And then it, then you can't talk about migration without talking about policies. So that took me right into the policy realm, which was consistent with my background in public health because hmm. public health is very applied. So that, that all felt just right. So that's how I started studying migration and immigration and immigration policy, doing a lot of consulting work because we needed data, we needed modeling. So that's the UN, that's US Census Bureau, all that kind of stuff kind of rolled out. And that was great because it also, frankly, very practically provided some income <laughs> when uh, Scott got the job at, at, at Colgate. So um and then here, you know, curricular, you know, opportunities here for the study of migration. Bob Elgie and geography saw someone who was interested in migration and he just kind of said, come hither. <laughs> and, and that work just, just really 
beautifully. And I found a home in, in uh, geography here at Colgate that has just been a blessing. So, um, so long answer. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's great. That's fascinating. Okay. I, um, t- tell us a little bit about your work with the United Nations. And uh, so w- what is the steering committee for the United Nations? Uh, How does yeah. that work? Yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, what do you folks try to accomplish in that group? Okay. Again, that's very, very time specific. So uh, in 2016, there was momentum uh, within the United Nations to really address uh, human migration in the context of the sustainable development goals. And that that leadership, boy, leadership is so important. You've heard me talk about Charlie Keeley and I could talk about Charlie Hirschman and I could talk about a, a number of people who've really influenced my lives through their mentoring and their leadership. Well, in the United Nations, um, uh, several of the people, including the Secretary General, um, decided uh, to take a very important step into the controversial area of migration in relationship to development, where certainly within the European case and within the United States, migration's controversial. It seen, was seen as a problem. Well, uh, uh, leaders and individuals and um, leadership within IOM, International Organization for Migration, said, okay, let's try to change the narrative and let's look at the positive effects. World Bank actually is very important in this area as well. They were generating a lot of data on remittances in the 1990s and early 2000s. So suddenly we had some metrics for looking at the positive effects of migration on um, uh, improving economic growth or fostering economic growth and in, uh, improving human welfare. So in the ni- 2000, literally 2016, also with some very important narratives and writing by Sir Peter Sutherland, um, who was this um, special representative to the Secretary General on international migration, wrote some very imp- compelling arguments for thinking about um, migration, international migration, within the context of of development. These are not forced migrants and refugees. Now we're kind of talking about economic migrants. And they sought to convene a um, summit, high level summit on uh, refugees and migrants. Um, And also the leadership sought to include civil society. And this happened very quickly in 2019, uh, sorry, 2016 and um, so advocatory groups for migrants and refugees really got organized. Save the Children, UNICEF, well, UNICEF, um, uh, you know, of uh, Catholic charities, you know, across the world, really sought to get their places at the table, and there was a place set for them at the table in the United Nations. The scientific community lapsed a little bit and kind of went oh my gosh, we need to be there as well. And, uh, and this actually goes back to that other story I just told you, is that the, the main, the most prominent International Association for Population Scientists, IUSSP, International Union for the Scientific Study of, of Population. That's the last time I'll say that. <laughs> so, you know, IUSSP. They weren't looking at migration much, remember. 
the focus was on fertility and, and mortality and uh, urbanization, all absolutely incredibly significant demographic processes, but the voice of migration pop demographers wasn't, those voices weren't quite as prominent. And again, leadership, particularly Bella Hovi in the population division at the United Nations who does migration said, wait a minute, we need to be at the table. And um, they called me and, you know, they, I, I know exactly where I was. Again, it was one of these moments. I was up in Lake Placid at the Adirondack Research Consortium meeting um, with Bruce Selleck, of course, my good buddy. Uh, miss him every day. Um, and I got this call like 15 minutes before I had to go off to a session. And, and they said, listen, you need to, if you're interested in doing it, representing demographers at the summit and help us form the representatives from civil society at the table, you need to get a, an application process in. And so I did that like within 12 hours. And, and so that's how I got on the committee. It was fascinating. And that I will say that in, that committee has ended. We worked okay. really hard for about nine months. Uh, we, we chose the organizations that would be at the table, but it also allowed me to be in the uh, General Assembly room of the United Nations making statements that are then in the public record, uh, part of the, 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 the record for... Um, that were considered by the uh, member states when they took the vote for the what was called the New York Declaration of um, <clears throat> uh, for refugees and migrants. That then put in place another set of processes to um, develop the global compacts. There were two of them: one for refugees, and the second, much more uh, significant in the sense of a new form of governance the Global Compact on Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. So I continued to work on getting the voice of demographers into the record. So I'd write things, I'd check it with, you know, consult with colleagues at IUSSP, and we get these records. Sometimes I'd speak them, usually I'd speak them, you know, within three minutes during the grand rounds or whatever, you know, the, uh, what, uh, the um, tour de table, at the UN when civil society members could speak and then also prepare written documents. It was fascinating. Um, uh, and it, you know, it came at the right time in my career. I mean, this was just a few years ago. I'm not a terribly young person, so I'd done a lot of stuff in between, but now I really was kind of going back to my roots in public health where I'm trying to build bridges between the science and the stakeholders. Hmm. And that felt like, the right place for me. And so I'm continuing to do that kind of work with IUSSP in getting um, demographic and population science uh, to serve, as, to contribute to policymaking at different levels uh, regarding human migration. How does international law def uh, define a refugee? So like who qualifies as being a refugee? And if, if you are considered a refugee, I guess, what does that status turn? What does that status bring in terms of UN support or other assistance that's out there? That's, <laughs> that's 
That's a good question. That's like a good exam question. <laughs> <laughs> you can use that one. Yeah, I mean, that uh, last spring I taught my course on international migration and U.S. immigration policy, and so that was kind of right in there. And actually, I, you know, I wanted students to know the answer to the question you just posed specifically because it is a legal term, and and it it um, uh, it's very you know. It exists in international law under the 1951 uh, Convention on the Status of Refugees that then has been, was, came out of the um, Second World War era to focus on European migration, uh, refugees, viewing it as kind of a temporary problem. But of course, that problem of forced displacement and the search for safe haven has never gone away. So in 1967, the United Nations extended the definition of a, a of a refugee to be global, and uh, it does focus on persecution for uh, social and political processes. The word environment is not in there, so we're struggling with uh, environmentally induced migration right now and protection uh, because of both natural disasters as well as slow onset. Um, uh, climate change because def the UN, UN definition does not embrace those um, sources of forced of displacement and the, the need for safety. Um, both in um, Latin America and in the um, and in the organization of African states. Uh, have expanded that the very specific definition. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it's sure. specific on persecution for membership in for political purposes, um, social categories, uh, and and the fear of lo loss of life because of um, social political persecution, not economic persecution. But both in Latin America and in Africa, there's a recognition of generalized violence. Uh, up whole, uh, you know, really affecting whole communities as being um, appropriate um, for defining the need for refuge. Mm -hmm. If one, if a person or a group of people are defined as refugees, it really has to be individually based primarily um, under the UN protocol of 1967. That that uh, provides. Uh, a requirement for protection, safety, the protection not to be returned, non-refoulement, not to be returned to uh, one's country when the conditions of flight are still in a, 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 a place. And it, it also um, conveys the responsibility of signatories to the UN Convention um, to, uh, to provide a safe haven. So that's kind of a formal definition. Uh, what that means in terms of how individual uh, states respond to that, it doesn't mean you have to provide permanent resettlement, but you can't, you can, we, we are, if we're, if we in the United States is a signatory to the 1967 protocol, if we, we, we can't create an unsafe situation for a person to find as refugees. Okay. And then how that plays out in terms of our own policy, I'm happy to talk about because one of the reasons I like your question and I like a very precise 
response to that question is that it affects people's lives. Right. So all of our folks that have been re, re, resettled in Utica, New York, through the center, it's now the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees has now been re, uh, redefined, uh, renamed as the center, which I kind of like. It's, it's denationalized. It's the center of the state, the center of Utica's. Um, I would love to have it say it's identity, but um, it's the center. The folks that are resettled, resettled uh, through the center are very aware of their legal status and their status under the U.S. Immigration and Nationality Act, and specifically the 1980 amendments to that act. Although we're a we're a signatory to uh, the UN conventions, we did not. Our legal definition of a refugee that existed between 1965 and 1980, defined it a, a refugee as a person fleeing a communist-dominated country, completely consistent with our foreign policy. Cold that was war. it? Only, mm -hmm. only just, yeah. just fleeing communism? Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. And now that changed in 1960 and we removed that, uh, sorry, 1980, and, and we removed that kind of restriction you know, I did some work during the 80s and 90s to show that that we still were primarily dealing with refugee, defining refugees in terms of a kind of a Cold War sort of mentality. But that's why um, Haitians were not defined as refugees under U.S. law, who were a uh, fleeing a right-wing fascist government in in the you know 1960s and 1970s, where Cubans were because they were fleeing Castro's regime. So, um, but that, you know, that's been eliminated. But remember, all of this has to play out in administrative law and who is who is actually admitted is, is very politicized, so, as we know. So I'm curious about the, the numbers and as a demographer and someone who looks at statistics and data and, and all this stuff, where is this data from? Like, I, I don't picture someone fleeing um, a country as like stopping to fill out a form. So like, how do you, um, I guess, what data sets do you look at? And I guess, how confident are you like that you're, you're catching everyone or is there um, kind of this, or do you know there's a certain uh, percentage that everything is off because, you know, you know, people are traveling and not talking to governments? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, ask, you ask really good questions. Um, oddly enough, I mean, I can't say any everything universally, but people who do flee and seek um, safety in transit camps um, are are registered. Okay. I mean, the, it, it, in a kind of go to some there's wonderful geographic work my colleague up at York University Jennifer Heinemann has work on worked on these sorts of issues quite a bit because I mean you could think about it as a positive thing in order you know people come into transit camps I've visited transit camps on the the west border of Uganda just across from DRC um, from Congo um, and those transit camps by the UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, go up very, very quickly. They're, they are meant to be kind of first responders. And in order to manage the people coming in, 
And you could think about that very uh, forensically and very negatively, but in fact, if you need to meet, you know, beds, tents, food, uh, hydration, uh, to prevent cholera from breaking out and keeping water safe, all of that, that really, it really requires public health management, very small spatial scale in terms of a, you know, a, one square mile or a half square mile sort of camp, you need to register those folks. And um, uh, either temporarily, if they're gonna then return to their home, which they want to do, they don't wanna leave, this is forced, but to make, you know, keep, stay alive, they may have to leave because of violence. Um, and then if they go on to uh, more permanent um, uh, life in, frankly, rather permanent refugee camps. I'm thinking about the three big ones in Uganda. These are cities, basically, of refugees. And those folks have committed to or do not see often a chance of returning. So they're getting in the queue for permanent resettlement in perhaps a third country. So they might go from transit to uh, an established refugee camp with with support and perhaps some, depending on the, the the country, Uganda is really good on this. You know, the allowing for employment even outside of the camp of refugees. But many of those folks are hoping to get to a third world country like Canada, like the such as the United States, and all of that is an incredible paper trail. Hmm. Uh, so when uh, President Trump. Uh, you know, really put the moratorium on refugee resettlement because of a, a, you know concern about terrorism and the Muslim ban. Oddly enough, refugees, people applying for permanent resettlement in the United States, are the most highly vetted group of migrants you can imagine, because uh, they've just gone through layers and layers and years, and sometimes dozens, you know, a dozen, maybe more, maybe twenty years. Oh. Uh, in refugee camps and just, you know, what we call temporary displacement when in fact these these are protracted homes, uh, uh, protracted displacement for refugees. And those folks often get, it's not that they get forgotten because they're living in these camps, but the, but the, the system doesn't move them along for kind of permanent resolution. And that's one of the issues of the global, going back to the global compact for refugees. That is a big move to recognize the role of countries of first asylum and uh, which are usually poor countries. Most of these events happen in poor countries, right? And um, among the poorest of the poor within those countries. And yet they go to proximate countries. The geography is really important here. And those are usually other poor countries like Kenya, like, well, poorer countries. Um, and Uganda, not Canada, not the United States, although Canada and the United States, we traditionally have been, in Australia have been important uh, um, persons of, uh, or countries of resettlement, but take only 1% of the you know, the 20 million or 25 million, I think right now, people worldwide that are, that are, that are refugees outside of their, they have to be outside of their country, home country to be refugees. And then we have internally displaced people. That's a, kind of another conversation. Mm. Um, so am I, do I find the numbers trustworthy? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, maybe 
I w- internally displaced are much harder. Uh, people who don't present themselves, uh, obviously, don't fall into that. But for the people who ultimately end up, let's say, in Utica, um, we may not know the entire population at risk, but we, we know the numbers that, that come uh, to the United States and certainly to Canada. But when I use that terrible phrase, a growth industry, you know, there are lots and lots of organizations and international as well as national organizations trying to rationalize and distribute resources and promote human welfare. And you need, you need accounting to do that. You know, I imagine, you know, refugees in these settle in these, um, these camps, uh, not easy, never easy. Uh, And now you have the added um, difficulties with uh, the pandemic. And I don't know if it's too soon or if you've seen anything, but I guess curious about the impact of the pandemic on these populations. Um, How has it uh, hit the camps and has it created new um, migration or has it curbed migration? Yeah. Great question. That's just what everyone, you know, I can't tell you. Every week there's another webinar on just this sort of issue. I think there's one going on right now in terms of the Canadian system. Um, uh, IOM, International Organization for Migration, is really on this. Africa, the African uh, Union Commission, uh, I'm we're, IUSSP is working on a project with them right now that I'm involved in. They are all over this. And, and so a number of effects. One, it has tamped down migration and mobility because there aren't jobs. So, you know, if there aren't jobs, people aren't moving as much. So that's part of it. Uh, there's a issue of, of, um, of health and disability and illness that, you know, and then you have women taking care of the people who are ill, it's like malaria. Remember, there's a lot of competing morbidity in, in, in areas of most areas of the world. Mm-hmm. So malaria is always gonna be there, you know, is there right now, tuberculosis is there right now, uh, all the childhood diseases, diarrheal diseases. So, you know, in one sense, COVID is competing or kind of working with all of that with the same sort of stratification that we see in the United States of people who are poor and are vulnerable and are marginalized, worried about their healthcare, uh, rural uh, are all, uh, all at risk. However, this has put, because data collection then gets really hard, we can't do door-to-door surveys, we can't do in-person surveys. Um, and of course, critical social theory and feminist scholars have been kind of laying this bare for decades, and as I said, Jennifer Heinemann, a good good friend, good colleague of mine at York, really, really blew that sort of my forensics, my demography, you know, said, and we did this in person, you know, in Pretoria, I remember at a conference in the 1990s, you know, she said there's, we got to know each other, and, and she helped me understand that there's really a common ground between kind of critical theory and the population sciences, and she and I have kind of tried to continue that dialogue and build those intellectual bridges right along, and I say that because now all those tools from uh, social theory and social analysis are helping us understand how we can get the voices of people during this time of COVID to the forefront. 
So it's actually a very exciting time in terms of emerging methodologies, using big data, using cell phone data in ways that are going to uh, allow us to answer traditional questions as well as answer the new questions that we have to ask. That's, that's so, a good segue, actually, into the yeah. next question that I had about technological development. So, like, how has the development of technology over the past 10, 20 years um, impacted refugees? Um, and I'm thinking of things like social media or just improved access, access to cell phones and the Internet. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, it means advocacy. The voices are, if we allow them, can come forward. Uh, we have much more um, temporally and spatially specific data. So we can look at movements and displacement, you know, the causes of people in flight much earlier on. I mean, we didn't, we, we just saw this in, um, what, I think it was CNN's coverage. It was really impeccable coverage of upheavals in, um, uh, in Nigeria where they could track the, um, uh, because of uh, photography and, and it used to be remote sensing, but now we can come down a, a little closer to ground so they could see, they could document that the military was coming in and knew right where the insurgents were. Hmm. And so you can see that mobility in real time and really happening. And we can see it with environmental change and deforestation and certification in, in a way that allows us, now this is the next step, is to predict much better. So if we go back to modeling and trying to forecast and kind of have anticipate upheaval and displacement, that should help us with our policy and programmatic response to support, if not prevent. So the technologies at all scales, you know, remote sensing, my, what my good friend Pete Skull does in, in geography, um, and, and Adam Burnett, we can really see it upper atmosphere, you know, lower atmosphere, and then they're really coming down very much to looking at city streets. It's, um, uh, and then, then we need the mathematicians to help us um, to, to model all of all of these dynamics going on. So this is beyond my toolkit, but um, uh, I'm so glad other people have the, have the you know the tool kits at their at their disposal. And so many of our Colgate faculty are right involved in this kind of work. It's great. So you mentioned before the the center in Utica, and that's you know not too far from Colgate for folks listening. Um, and, uh, you know, they used to be the Refugee Center, right? The Mohawk Valley yeah. Refugee Center, and they rebranded. Um, and you were recognized in 2018 for some of your work with that. You were named uh, the WCNY Makers, oh, Women, yeah. who, Women Who Make America. Yeah. Um, it was really nice recognition. I, I yeah. wonder if you can just talk for a minute or two about the center, um, how you've worked with them, and um, what their role is um, in um, supporting refugee resettlement. Oh yes, uh, this is uh, I, this is this is my inspiration. I, you know, I, when we before COVID, but um, you know, I I'll just say if if I were had would have a blue day at Colgate or if something was, you know, some local politics about parking or something <laughs> that you know the, the class schedule or something like that was you know 
being um, was occupying us at a Colgate, I would occasionally just get in the car, drive drive up Route 12, go to the center, and just sit. <laughs> Shelley Callahan, who's the the ED, the uh, the executive director of there, would know. She'd let me come in, just let me sit, kind of take it all in, because that's where I would get inspired. Because that's where, you know. Lives are being changed at Colgate, no doubt about it, but lives are being changed up there as well. People are being received, they're being welcomed, they're uh, being listened to. And um, uh, so just really good people working up there, many of whom were former former refugees who are on the staff at the center. Hmm. Um, so the center's been uh, kind of was formally formed around uh, 1979, 1980. And then uh, really gained momentum in the latter part of the 1980s as they became um, received a federal contract for cultural reorganization of Asian uh, Americans, children of, of uh, Vietnamese women, uh, largely, uh, who were being resettled uh, in the, you know, a decade after the uh, fall of Saigon and the end of the uh, Vietnam War. And uh, uh, and with that brought in staffing a lot of people. And then in uh, uh, the 1990s, we had Bosnia. And then so, you know, there's nothing, we often think about refugee producing situations as be kind of coming out of the blue and something we can't predict. Well, we, we know they go on and on and on and on, you know, and um, it's, uh, and and so the uh, the refugee center became um, uh, what we call a um, an affiliate of one of the uh, ten large now large now there are nine I believe VOLAG voluntary agencies in the United States that uh, partner with uh, the Department of State to to resettle refugees. This has been our model in the United States since the turn into the 20th century, this public-private partnership between the federal government. Remember, immigration refugee policy is federal. Um, the states are players, but they don't form the policy. Um, and that's always been a tension in US immigration policy, immigration and refugee policy. Um, but. Uh, the the federal government has always has since the you know the large streams of migration at turn into the 20th century kind of the Ellis Island era has partnered with um, civil society largely churches to help in the resettlement process and that still exists today so there are nine uh, voluntary agencies Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services is the voluntary agency that the center is affiliated with. So there, there were uh, nine VOLAGs and up until the Trump administration, about 400 affiliates all over the country. Hmm. And New York State's very prominent in this. There's major refugee resettlement in Buffalo, in Rochester, had been in Binghamton, um, uh, Schenectady area, and of course, Utica. Uh, and, and New York City, absolutely. There are many uh, affiliates in New York City. Uh, with the uh, the uh, really moratorium on refugee resettlement under this current administration, those the the number of affiliates has dropped 
to about 250. I think we've lost about 150 mm. of them. So the infrastructure has been eroded. So even though under the um, uh, president-elect Biden's administration, should the doors reopen to refugee resettlements, we we you can't just open the doors again. And those folks have gone on to find, you know, the professionals have found other jobs, hopefully. But um, in Utica, um, the, uh, we, we've had a business model, and I say we, truth and advertising, I'm on the board, I've been on the board there for, what, 15 years, 20 years maybe now, but we have a business model that has allowed us not to solely rely on federal money and state money hmm. for refugee resettlement. So we, have, we do um, interpretation, we, do, um, we work with employers to help match both refugees as well as other people in need of employment in Utica as well. So uh, we've managed to um, stay in business, serve the refugee and immigrant communities within the region, uh, support employers to help them uh, be inclusive and, and respect cultural diversities. We do a lot of education. I mean, uh, the staff does not, I don't, but. Um, and uh, it's, it's been inspiring. Our board is very mission driven. And uh, I will say though, my partnership and my involvement in the center followed my, um, their uh, permission to allow me to have students do service learning projects up at the center. Not, not doing research that is uh, on refugees but to do the kind of work that the staff of the center needs doing. So very consistent with the Upstate Institute. That is, we listen to what the center needs. We try to organize student projects to meet those needs of the center. So research questions, um, knowledge generation defined by the leadership of the center. Having been so deeply involved in issues of refugee resettlement through the years, I'm curious if, um, you know, through your knowledge of U.S. law and um, through various policies, if you could be in charge for the day uh, and you could make whatever sweeping reform you'd like to U.S. immigration, um, not immigration, I guess, in refugee policy, yeah. um, what, what would be the one thing that you think would make the biggest difference or the one thing that you wish you could change? Well, there's a short-term answer to that question and a longer-term answer to that question. The short-term one is to return to levels of refugee resettlement that had been operative under Reagan, hmm. under Bush, under Clinton, under Bush, under Obama. Now, and that was receiving about 75,000 to, a, it was higher under Reagan, oddly enough. Um, but let's say 75,000 uh, refugees uh, per year. And if you combine the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, a tiny, that's tiny, but that really only gets at 1% of the population, world global population in need. I mean, so it's just the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but that's not nuts. I mean, we were at the, you know, I work with these data, again, uh, very forensically working with Democrats.
demographic data. And the United States used to be at the top of the list. Largest number, we were said of the largest absolute number, not per capita, but absolute number of refugees per year. And now we're absolutely off of the list at this point for permanent resettlement. Remember, we don't, we're, we pick and choose our refugees. That's a whole nother story. We're very, very selective. Um, so that's a short-term question. I would say let's person up to our, our humanitarian responsibilities to participate in uh, receiving refugees. The other short-term answer is to allow people to file for refugee status through the process of asylum seeking. That's completely de de been decimated. It violates our, under this, pres uh, this administration, we really violate our adherence to international law not to put people in harm's way. We've been putting people in harm's way, at the, largely at the southern border. We've just got to stop that. We've got to do what's right. Uh, longer term uh, is to think about, and this is where the case of Utica is really interesting, is thinking about immigration, refugee resettlement in relationship to um, community and urban and maybe rural development. Can we think about, you know, our the, the Northeast, certainly upstate New York, we've been losing, we've been hemorrhaging population. And um, in Utica, refugee resettlement has kind of stalled that a little bit and hasn't reversed it. Um, maybe a few years up and down a little bit, but can we think about international migration and refugee resettlement as a way, and again, forensic, these are people, but people who want to work, want to raise families, want to participate in democracy. Can we use all of those aspirations of uh, people seeking safety and well-being, so immigrants as well as refugees, to complement our goals for sustainable urban development, innovation, cutting-edge education in the United States? So it's win-win-win. So this is consistent with the Global Compact on Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. And then if you want to bring out the real capitalist in me, if we don't do this, China will. Remember, China's gone through real demographic change. They need labor. You, you can't believe that they would need labor, but they're, no. they need labor. And they're already recruiting labor in Africa and students. And you know, post uh, undergraduate and postgraduate students, and we're going to lose out because wow. we, you know, we're we're an aging society as well. Europe is as well, and the, you know, the the um, resource of of this century is human. Good ideas, creativity, good hearts, good heads, healthy people, healthy bodies, good people, leaders. And if there, if 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 you want to think about who are the who who's courageous in this world, it's migrants, hmm. you know, elite people who say I'm going to make a big change by moving, you know. So um, that that would be my long term vision. Crayley 2024. At least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> one vision. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit here, uh, and I, I want to go back to one of probably one of the most prominent stories to come out of Colgate in the past 20 years, uh, and, and that is uh, in 2004, 
Uh, a large number of artworks were discovered in Colgate's Picker Art Collection. Uh, and that art uh, was created by Aboriginal children in Australia, and uh, more specifically, a group known as the Stolen Generation. Um, and for folks who haven't heard the story before, I was wondering if you could just kind of um, go through a little bit about, you know, this artwork, why it's important, and why it was important for Colgate to work on repatriating it um, mm -hmm. back to Australia, uh, and, and specifically uh, work with Curtin University. Right. Oh, great. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, sure. I, I've been so fortunate to have good colleagues here at Colgate. Colgate just supports faculty research, professional exploration, professional change in so many ways. I've just been so lucky. Um, and you've heard me talk, I think, with excitement and, and passion about my work on immigration and refugees. As Scott, my husband, best friend, reminds me and has reminded me since 2004, uh, the work with um, uh, on the Carolup artwork is probably the most important of my career, um, uh, and the most difficult, the most challenging, and trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. Mm. I mean, I know how to run a population projection, <laughs> but uh, in terms of thinking about cultural heritage, listening to people's sorrow as well as hopes and dreams um, very far away in Western Australia. Um, this, this is most gratifying, most terrifying, most wonderful uh, experience of my life. Um, where to begin, Dan? Oh my gosh. I know so, it's such um, a big, we could do a whole podcast a episode because, about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I could, where to start, what year to start in 1945 when a teacher came to an Aboriginal reserve in the, the you know, bush of uh, Western Australia, the southwest of Western Australia, and saw, decided to, to use artwork to inspire these children who had been removed from their families. Uh, his name was Noel White. And out of that good teaching pedagogy, you know, I wish I had someone from educational studies here to kind of talk about the use of artwork or writing or music to help inspire children to learn. I mean, he was not an artist, but he saw things started to come alive in these children. They started to produce artwork, uh, drawings, pastels in particular. And so that you could start there. But that's not the right way to start in terms of Australia, because you really have to start with population displacement, forced migration, population control, and, and the attempt to kind of eliminate the oldest ongoing civilization in the world, Australian Aboriginal peoples. And they're not one people, they're like 700 different groups throughout Australia, language groups. Um, and that started in 1788, you know, with, uh, Botany Bay. And so where to start, you know, um, and I started in all of this through demography, doing a project on using population data to control people hmm. um, long before my involvement in Kerala. But uh, so th there's a blending there of interest. But because I was doing that work and publishing in the area of, of um, 
population data in the, in the colony and then state of Victoria with a colleague at University of Wollongong because of our study abroad programs. I mean, all of this, you can see all these kind of pieces. They, they didn't just fit together. They kind of fell together. It was a different kind of puzzle. They kind of tumbled on each other. And out of that came a project with John McQuilton and uh, on uh, studying Victoria and population data, how they were used to control people Aboriginal people in, 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 in Victoria. But because of that, folks, we're a small community here at Colgate. You know, the folks in the picker uh, had these uh, artworks identified, and we can talk about how they came to Colgate. Um, but they thought, oh, Ellen, she does stuff on this stuff. Let's call her down and show her it to her. And that's just what happened. <laughs> and it happened because the art and art history department has an endowed lecture, uh, the Ryan lecture, and they had Dr. Howard Morphy, wonderful fellow, whose wife actually works on Aboriginal census stuff. It's also weird. Anyway, he gave this lecture on Aboriginal art, Australian Aboriginal art. They came there. He, they showed him at the picker, a, a beautiful bark painting another, I think another uh, portrait, and then these, this box of children's artwork. He knew exactly what it was because folks in Australia had been looking for it for 20 years. Oh my goodness. Now, how many pieces of art was it? Uh, it was a hundred and, I want to say 122 paintings, mm -hmm. drawings, paintings on 95 objects because some of them were double-sided. And um, so he saw them. I was, you want to hear something funny. I wasn't at his lecture. I would have gone to his lecture because I'm interested in Australia's stuff and Aboriginal stuff. I was actually, if you can believe this, this is 2004. I was in Washington, D.C. at the um, uh, Afghanistan embassy to talk about setting up a study abroad program in Kabul. Wow. So, you know, we were really aspirational about study abroad at that moment. But so that's why I wasn't at the lecture. But, you know, that didn't go anywhere, by the way. Wow. But um, would have been interesting, wouldn't it? So 121 paintings. They'd come to Colgate in about 1966. It was a donation from Herbert Mayer, who was class of what, 19... Uh, my buddy, Mary and Kayla would know this, 29, I think. And he had a, a gallery in New York City, the World House Gallery. He had bought the, this collection from uh, Florence Rudder, who is an English woman in London. She had taken a whole collection of the work produced in 19, about 1950 from the Carolup School in Western Australia because she was visiting there. She was inspired. She wanted to raise money for the children to benefit the children in at the Carol Up School in Reserve. So she took uh, how many, maybe 250 pieces all through Europe and to England. And she um, displayed them to raise money and raise awareness for uh, the children and uh, that petered out at a few years. And in fact, the, the, boy, the girls and boys who produced this work were forced to leave the school at the age of 14, maybe 15. And so they kind of went their ways and time went on. 
and she needed the money. So she sold the sold what she had left, hundred the ninety five pieces, to Mr. Mayor. He we believe displayed them. He had a, he had an exhibit in nineteen sixty two maybe was written about in the New York Times of international children's artwork. So not just the Aboriginal artwork, but I think some Indian work, uh, children from India as well. And then he would dissolved his his um, gallery and some of the stuff, including Italian art, not just the Aboriginal art, came to Colgate about the time the picker was being built. Oh. It went into storage and didn't come out until Howard Murphy arrived. Wow. So it was kind of static. Uh, it was safe, but um, not appreciated. And then suddenly it was appreciated and or so. And then from there, um, I think Colgate was wise in in admitting our ignorance about what to do. And then what did we do? We do what we did best. We started to teach about it. And that's where I started a, the uh, 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 an extended study to Western Australia and was received. And, and as I as that happened, I think we I almost immediately knew how complex the landscape was, the political landscape, the cultural landscape. And I think, Dan, because of my background in refugee studies, I think I understood that maybe the people I might have been talking to in Perth were not the people I should be talking with. (laughs) And I learned that pretty quickly. Lots of steps along the way. And it kind of goes to this idea of being specific about time and place. And I literally met some people out in the bush because I, I kind of felt I need to get to, I needed to get off track. I had to get off the beaten track to kind of learn and, and start to widen my vision about who should be at the table. And it ended up a picnic table in a little village called Wajin which is about 18 kilometers north of the Carolup settlement, which still exists. There aren't people there, but the buildings are all there and everything. At a particular picnic table that I visited many times with with, uh, leaders of Carolup, traditional leaders, (laughs) and uh, Ezard Flowers uh, and Mr. Wallum, who's passed now, kind of guided us through the process and I Colgate was lovely in helping in in letting me explore that but um, we'll put a we'll put a link in the show description to some of the artwork I think there's some well if you could do that but there and there's actually a new link because we've returned this would be fabulous, actually. Uh, I think some of, uh, you know, oh, we've taken over 100 students to Western Australia through a series of extended studies. That was going to be my next question. Like, yeah, on my own. Know, and then I did yeah. it with Marianne Kahlo, went with me. She was in art and art history. She was a real mentor to me, a real friend and all of this. She uh, she was like Scott. She kept pushing me. Say, every time I'd be in tears going, I don't know if we're doing this the right way. She'd say, keep going, keep going. And... <laughs> And then Adam Burnett in geography has mm-hmm. gone with me a couple of times and he's a true believer. He's a good friend, good colleague. So, you know, so taking a lot of students out there. Um, 
And they'd be really interested in what's just happened literally in the last 10 days. I should tell you about that. Uh, what's it's that? really, really important. And Brian Casey, uh, President Casey, has been involved in all of this. Um, oh, God. You know, I've Breaking news. Breaking down. news on the podcast. Well, um, so we returned the work in 2013. What was going to make this all work, and we also felt was important, and the Carol Up leaders felt this was important too, is that we needed an institution in Western Australia. And in that we chose, we felt the right organization and was an educational organization, Curtin University. <laughs> they they have the largest number, both per capita and um, and absolute, of indigenous people going to uh, um at their university, they have a dedicated reconciliation plan, the only one in Australia, to uh, reflect institutionally and systematically in the university of, of Aboriginal issues and, and welfare and rights to repair and, and uh, reconcile the, the wrongs of the past. And it's in their strategic plan, they mainstream throughout their curriculum. I mean, they're so forward thinking, not just forward thinking, they're right thinking about how to uh, make amends. And they uh, agreed to, they would only accept the work if they had the, we had the approval of, of uh, the Carol Up elders. And Colgate students in their involvement oh, between what, 2008, in 2017, going in a, a extended studies and some independent studies, students going there as well, were able to really, because of the core, because of interdisciplinarity at Colgate, because of the liberal arts, uh, were able to receive these very complex stories. And they've really been part of all of this. Now, funny. since the return in 2000, almost immediately, uh, Colgate, uh, Curtin set up a, you know, involved Carol Up elders and Nungar leaders in helping to kind of take the next steps with the, the, the care of this artwork and getting it out to the communities all through very, 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 very rural communities out through the southwest of Western Australia through exhibits and all sorts of things. They launched on November 10th. So what's the date today? It was 21st or something. Yeah, 20th. 20th. Okay. So 10 days ago, they launched the uh, Carol Up Center for Truth Telling. Hmm. So it's a new initiative at uh, Curtin University. Um, they had a big event uh, on the 10th. That was last Tuesday. Uh, it was midday um, uh, where they, they exhibited all 122 images. Again, they've done this before, but again, uh, all uh, and made a verbal pledge, and I think it's a written pledge as well, to the Nungar leadership uh, for making the work accessible, doing everything that we hoped at Colgate that Curtin would do. And now it's actually reified in a formal um, center for truth telling to provide research and education and access to this work because it's all about family. It's all about love of country. It's all about keeping the heritage and the environmental practices, and, well, and the, the community environmental ecological practices of Noongar people for 
um, made for expressing their love of country, their love of land, their love of each other, their love of Australia as well, uh, to keep it going. And the artwork is as is a vocabulary, is an expression of that. As my friend Sandra Hill, who's a Carol Up artist, says, "Good old love of country." That those children were just. 11, 10, 11, 12 who created this artwork were telling through this artwork. Wow. So if you, if, if I can give you that link, Dan. Yeah, sure. Because you can see, you can, you can see the ceremony and, and, and uh, President Casey with his way and his heart and his sincerity delivered this wonderful message of congratulations to oh. Curtin and the Carol Up leaders, the elders um, and the government of Western Australia, who was well represented at the event, and it was right up front. It was a, a so I, I think yeah, we'll, we'll the Carol folks see us as part of their family. I hope that ha- continues because they've changed all of our lives. That's amazing. Yeah. All right, oh, I'm yeah. gonna do some do some traveling again, and this time I want to uh, I'm gonna fly out to Uganda and uh, talk. <laughs> I want to talk to a little bit about your trip there in 2003. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that was a crazy, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to be, because that, that was the same trip where I went to Sudan. Uh, okay. That was, a, yeah, that was a sabbatical trip where I went to uh, Sudan and Uganda. Started in, Uga- in, in Sudan working with Doctors Without Borders and to help them do some research and then I, from there i went i went to uganda for the first time um and that was the beginning of uh, uh several trips to uganda right Is yeah. That- oh yeah 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 and that that and and because of um again because of colgate and good colleagues here uh uh, in in environmental studies we saw i was able to communicate the potential for uh, again, maybe a, an extended study um, uh, opportunity for our students to kind of think about um, uh, human health in relationship to animal health. In this case, it was gorilla, um, and also rural health delivery. And you know, I came back from kind of exploring those relationships because of of, of um, some professional connections that uh, I could already, I could imagine, because again, we're, we're friends here, we know each other's work well, I could think immediately of, of people in biology, people in geography, specifically Frank Fry in, in biology and environmental studies and Pete Skull in geography uh, and his work in GIS um, and also soils, uh, soils geographer. Um, and think about how all these, you know, the human communities, the um, uh, the animal communities, and then also um, public, or I'm sorry, um, park management, national park management, and this uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site, Bwindi Impenetrable National Park, how all of these things kind of were trying to fit together. Uh, through really good people, and particularly public health leadership um, uh, and conservation folks in the southwest of Uganda, how these all fit together. And again, 
putting practicality on my head, my public health background, could Colgate students and Colgate faculty help contribute to the work of, of um, hospitals and conservation organizations in this region? So that, that kind of that kind of grew into some wonderful partnerships that are, you know, are ongoing right now with Frank and Pete's work, their SRS work, and more students going and working with Windy Community Hospital. If anybody SRS wants to being the, the sophomore residential seminar? Yes. The, the, yeah. Uh, and um, we now have a very strong relationship through, with Windy Community Hospital. Hmm. Um, they're very, that's a private hospital, uh, I think about 125 beds, but I think 60 to 70% of their work is, is community-based outreach um, in uh, this, um, the Southwest of, of Uganda. Very, 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 I mean, you can see Congo from Buwindi. Hmm. Um, it's an interesting area too, because it's an area of elite sort of uh, tourism, people coming in to see the mountain gorilla in Buwindi, you know, through the uh, national park system there, very expensive. It's hard to get to. Hmm. You can fly into Budagoda, but it's still it's 45 minutes over rough terrain to get to Buwindi to see the gorilla. And, you know, it's expensive to track. Um, but, uh, and then again, putting on my demographer's hat, this is an area of one of the highest remaining areas remaining in the world with very, very high fertility. Um, child mortality, infant and child mortality is, is it's come down through the good work of, of hospitals and outreach such as Bwindi, but is still higher than most areas of the world. And then very close to, remember, this is the triangle, if you can think of them, get your maps in front of you, everybody. <laughs> this is the corner of uh, close to Rwanda and Congo. Now, um, very, Rwanda is very stable at this point, Congo ups and downs in terms of insurgencies. So um, this is where I visited transit camps because it's an area of, of people fleeing over the border, you know, in the 1990s, it was Rwanda, uh, just into Uganda for safety. Um, you can still see where those camps were, uh, but transit camps um, in Uganda still are needed in the Kasoro era area. Um, but uh, it's been, I think, as with Western Australia, Uganda has been transformative for so many students who've gone there. Um, it's transformative for me. I spent some time there on sabbatical um, uh, a little bit later. That, I was getting mixed up with the dates because I was there on my own for about six weeks. Um, I was going to ask if that tied in into your work about uh, what the, your work um, studying the impact of HIV and AIDS in Eastern Africa. Is that is that tied into that or is that separate? Oh, no, that's very tied into it. Um, so one of the times that we had students in Uganda, um, uh, again, this is the Upstate Institute, our own institute. It's the model of listening to what they need. And um, and that's really how our, our um, 
our strong partnership with Bwindi Community College uh, Hospital began, it began with an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, it was as simple as that. We were, uh, Frank and, and, and Pete and I were there kind of exploring the idea of looking at, of the gorilla kind of research. And we were staying in a, a, a tent camp that was literally across the street from the, or across the path from the hospital. And I thought, well, you know, let's go see the hospital. So I walked across with the Brenda Fry, I think Frank's wife, and started talking with the um, superintendent, uh, Paul Williams, who was a Brit. Um, uh, and, you know, I just kind of said, when, when he heard my background was in public health and we started talking about larger data sets and he said, you know, I have all this, uh, he said, I have this, I have, I have um, uh, uh, survey data that's in an Excel spreadsheet. And I had a student, he said, I had a graduate student from an, uh, another university I'll say an Ivy League, I won't name the university, who was supposed to analyze it, but he or she hasn't kind of come through yet. And I said, well, we can do that, you know? And literally I walked back across the path. Paul had already sent me the Expel cell spreadsheet, uh, you know, as an email attachment. And um, we had a soccer student, Josie um, Johnson, Gosh, am I getting that right? I may want to check that. That's all right. Yeah, no problem. You can uh, look it up. Uh, but Josie analyzed it. She did an independent study with me and analyzed the data and sent off a report to Paul. And that was all he needed. He needed to know that we could do the work and that we would do the work. Uh, and, you know, we're good at that here at Colgate. We follow up. We kind of grade students. <laughs> we make them do the work. And But frankly, they want to do the work and they want their work to be relevant. And um and so that when when he realized that he that created some confidence, and so then we started asking, what else can we do? And right after we we did the analysis of the survey data, you know, cross tabs and graphics and that sort of thing, Paul said, "Well, you know, okay, you've told us how much we have of everything, how many people, how many." people per family and all that stuff. Now we have to understand the whys behind the wealth, the health questions. So we need to do qualitative research. Well, I don't speak Rachiga and students don't speak Rachiga, but even, even we were like-minded. We knew if, the, if we were gonna have a sustainable impact on Bowindi, if we're gonna make a really good gift or contribution. It was through teaching their staff to collect the data. So then my, I did what I do, what we're, we do here at Colgate, I taught. So I started teaching the staff of the hospital how to do focus groups. And which is what I've been, that's what I did in Sudan for Doctors Without Borders. So it kind of developed a curriculum um, over three or four days, um, and uh, and they start collecting their own data. Now they could collect the data, but then analyzing the data is much more time consuming. And so we did what we did in Sudan. They would send us um, the transcripts and the recordings, and then we 
students would do through for um, independent studies, for senior theses, that sort of thing, would actually analyze the data. And a lot of the data was on HIV testing. What was preventing people from, was it stigma? Was it the distance? Was it the timing? Was it the staff? Were they welcoming? But to help the uh, hospital create better programs of outreach for people to come in and get uh, tested for HIV. And so um, I was able to communicate that research through some publications. And, but the more important thing is was staff could do the, and they're still doing this sort of research. They've actually adapted the uh, focus group methodology to be more conducive to uh, the communities and to the communities of women and men and how they would be feel comfortable answering questions and, um, so that's, again, very gratifying because it's investing in their own human capital. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, you've made it all the way to the 13th question. <laughs> okay. uh, I want to, you know, I want to wrap up here a little bit, but, you know, I feel like I can't leave without asking what you did in Sweden last year. So you spent an entire year in Sweden um, yeah. as the Wiley Brandt guest professor in international migration and ethnic relations at, and please correct me if I pronounce this wrong, Malmo University? Is that Malma, right? yeah. Malma, Malma. Malma, yeah. Um, it's a, it was a Willie Brandt professorship. So it's actually named after Willie Brandt in Germany. Uh, it was a gift of the city of Malma to the university. University is a fairly new university. Um, uh, and uh, to... Uh, promote the study of immigration and international migration. So it's a rotating chair professorship. And I was invited to do that. What an honor, an incredible honor. Uh, I have looked at other people who've been invited. There aren't many people from residential liberal arts undergraduate institutions. So that, that was fantastic. Um, and it was just just delightful, wonderful people there. I was able to work with graduate students and undergraduates, but graduate students because part of the um, require or the um, uh, characteristics of the chair is to do some public outreach. So I would do some public lectures, but I didn't have to teach. Uh, not that I, I love to teach. I kept kind of gravitating into their classrooms and they were kind of like, why, you know, you know, you don't you want to go off to your cubicle and, and do your research, but which I did, but you know, I love the students there. Just, just fabulous, very international groups. They weren't all Swedes at all. Um, and uh, they got my juices going. And I was, at that point, I was doing a lot of this UN work, working on the global compacts for, for safe, orderly and regular migration and doing a, uh, working with a Bella Hovey from the United Nations on a paper, uh, looking at the role of research in the compact. So I was able to share that, test some of those ideas with really good migration scholars and be in Sweden. Malma is at the very, it's the it's a location where the the movie and the series about Wallander, the detective, is mm. so right across the bridge from Copenhagen. So this wonderful, beautiful kind of, I mean, lower part of Sweden was part of Denmark until what was? Oh my gosh, I was supposed to know this. Fifteen sixty eight, something like that. So it's very the southern part is kind of very Danish, and. Um, 
uh, but Swedish, but I could be in Copenhagen, you know, in half an hour. And so that was lovely. And then able to explore on fast trains up to Stockholm. And I had met some good colleagues in Gothenburg and gave talks up there. It was just, what a gift. It was lovely. And I kind of felt it was, you know, it, it was just lovely. Really, really good, really good colleagues. And just on a personal note, my uh, I have two sons, men, and um, one is a chemist, having worked with John Cochran here at, you know, grew up in Hamilton, did summer research with John Cochran in chemistry here, had a great high school teacher, Terry Monty, and he, he works over in Keene State in, in New Hampshire. And is doing what Scott and I do, you know, so we talk a lot about things. But And my other son, Jeff, is a professional musician. And he, and in his pro- current project, I'm going to advertise here, Paris Monster, they were doing a lot of work in Germany, in, uh, in uh, Estonia, in Denmark. So I was actually able to see live performances of oh. what they were doing really, you know, on weekends and that sort of thing. So that yeah. was just as a family, it was kind of, again, strange being thrown together or coming together in strange, play, interesting places that one just doesn't expect or you just have to be open to. And I've, I've been so lucky. I've been so lucky. I'm so thankful for uh, the fact that, you know, I found a home in geography here at Colgate and environmental studies um, and we've had great leadership, great friends, and people like you, Dan. <laughs> that was 13. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Curley, for joining the podcast. I mean, I could easily ask you another 13 questions right now. But maybe we'll have you on again uh, down the road. Well, um, thank you. Really, thanks for asking. And it's uh, you've made me think about lots of other people and play, you know, people and places again. And it's uh, this Thanksgiving I am incredibly thankful. Nice. Well, tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions you'd like to have answered, uh, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And I hope everyone has a a great holiday. We should have one more episode um, before we take uh, a very short break um, during the holiday season here. Uh, And then we will be back um, with more episodes. And uh, thanks for listening. As always, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.